This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Many of those athletes are names you would recognize because I've had many of them on the show. Visit fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That's my personal favorite. I take it every day. The performance-boosting EnduraX and their delicious protein supplements, weapons-grade whey, and the plant-based PowerPlex. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to the coupon right there in your podcast app. This episode is also brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Right now, I'm really motivated to work on my leg and hip flexibility for a climb that I want to do later this year, a boulder problem down in Waco. And I need to be slightly more open in the hips to reach this foothold. And I know I can do it if I just put a little work in over the next year. Unfortunately, I hate stretching, but the great thing is Crimped makes it easy. I just jump into the app, pull up their hip and leg flexibility workout. There are videos that show me exactly what to do, a built-in timer that tells me how long to hold each stretch, and I don't even have to think about it. I love it. So if you are a self-coached climber and want proven workouts to improve your bouldering or your finger strength or endurance, flexibility, you name it, Crimped has you covered. So check it out. Crimped is spelled C-R-I-M-P-D. That's crimp with a D at the end. And you can find it in the App Store for iOS and Android. Or you can use the web-based version at crimped.com. And it's totally free to try it out. So check out Crimped. That's crimped.com. Or download the Crimped app at the App Store to try it out for free. And get started with your training. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Dr. Carrie Cooper. Carrie spent many years as a professional climber herself from about 2005 to 2019, and she's a doctor of physical therapy who now specializes in climbing injuries, how they're caused, how to treat them, how to prevent them, and she's dedicated to moving other people through the injury process and getting them back to performance while educating them to stay injury-free. Carrie's also a badass. She's been climbing V10 for about two decades now, still climbing V10 occasionally as a mom of two. And I really enjoyed this conversation. We talked about quite a number of different things. We talked about Carrie's background in gymnastics and dance and going to school with Danny McBride. We talked about how she fell in love with climbing and why she walked away from dance. We talked about her path to becoming a doctor of physical therapy and then we dove into a lot more of the science stuff that she's really interested in and practical, helpful advice for you guys. We talked quite a bit about the research that exists in climbing. There's a lot more research in climbing than I had realized. And Carrie is a huge proponent of reading research and reads a lot of research herself. So we dug into that and we got a bunch of great listener questions from patrons for this episode. So Carrie answered a lot of questions from you guys. 
ranging from what some of her work has looked like with national level athletes. Carrie actually spoke at the Tokyo Olympics and worked on the climbing World Cup circuit with athletes for about five years. So we talked about some of that. And we also talked about why she's not a big fan of taping finger injuries and other injuries over the long term. We talked about mobility and warming up. We talked about her thoughts on compound movements versus more targeted antagonist type exercises and a ton more. I thought this was a really great episode. I got a lot out of it and I really enjoyed this conversation with Carrie. Thank you guys for being here. Welcome to any of you who are listening for the first time. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Dr. Carrie Cooper. Hi. Hey. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Sleepy. Still waking <laughs> up a little bit, but I'm good. I've got my coffee. Oh, this so. sounds lovely. It's a beautiful <laughs> morning here in Salt Lake. I've already been up for like three hours, so... Man, okay, you and I are talking at nine o'clock in the morning. What have you been doing since six? Well, I have two kids, so I that end up waking it. up pretty early. I love I love our morning ritual of waking up, making coffee, getting the kids up, making breakfast, like making breakfast together with them, and we start to have a conversation about the day, and then they go off and you know, I tell them I love them and make good choices. And it just feels really good to have this routine in the morning. Starts the day out really well. That sounds great. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I usually just wake up and stumble my way to the coffee pot and uh, start working right away. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you? Um, I'm in St. George right now. Oh, nice. I bet it's gorgeous down there right now. Yeah, it is. It's that time of year where it's funny. It's like 85 one day. Yesterday, we were like numbing out at the cliff and I was wearing puffy pants again. It's just all over the place, you know? It was cold last <laughs> night, which made it great spring. for sleeping. But yeah, it's just oh. the yeah springtime all over the place. It's kind of um, bipolar weather right now. It's the same here in Salt Lake. Like it's 60 degrees. And you're like, there's no way that the friction up in Little Cottonwood is going to be anything but garbage. And you go up and it is so crispy, perfect. It is mind-blowing. <laughs> it's great. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well, um, I'm already recording. I've got my notes in front of me. I might use some of this or I might cut it out. I never... Cool. Always be recording. That's my rule. Always be recording and then you can make the edits later. What is your audio setup? Because you sound really good, actually. Like, better than the average person who just jumps on their their computer. Uh, I have pillows all around me right now. I, like, made myself really comfortable. Nice. So, I have pillows and I'm facing a window. I have no idea. Nothing um, <laughs> fancy. It's just my MacBook Air. That's it. Okay. Like, I don't have a microphone. I'm not tech savvy. So... Great. Nailing it. All right. Cool. <laughs> Sounds good. I spoke at the Olympics in uh, Tokyo and 
I was terrified. Well, I was terrified just because of the situation anyway. Um, but it was all online. And so I had to like figure out what are people who work from home doing with their audio? And I still like, I don't, I still have no idea like what people are doing, how they're doing this. Like, yeah, my setup is bad. (laughs) No, I think most people are doing exactly what you're doing right now. They're well, yeah, most of them are probably surrounded by pillows. Some of them are probably wearing their pajamas and they're just talking into a computer. Like, you know, the, the software's come so far, like you don't even really have to wear headphones anymore because the the Zoom software is so good at canceling out my audio coming through. You know, like it's pretty amazing. But some people, it's just all sorts of things. It's all over the place. Some people are just doing meetings on their phone. Some people have like fancy microphones and professional setups and stuff. And just kind of a funny time where like anything goes, we're all just trying to figure it out, you know? We're going to look back on this someday. That's going to be an interesting (laughs) retrospective. It is. What did you talk about in that talk for Tokyo? Oh, okay. Um, At the Tokyo Olympics or at every Olympics, there is a medical symposium and it is for all of the sports that are involved at the Olympics. And so there are days where they have, you know, one day it'll be running injuries or looking at, they, they have uh, categories and subjects that they go with. And um, our day was all, it was all climbing. We were, we were the only, we actually were the only sport that had our own symposium. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, it was really amazing. And I, the only way that I can reason through why we were invited to do this is that, um, climbing as a new sport in the Olympics, we are obsessed with climbing. Like we are a, a, of any other sport or participants in a sport that I've ever come in contact with. Climbers are the most obsessed about performance, training, medicine, like whatever you are into, we tend to be very um, proactive and curious. And given that we're such a young sport, we already have a huge, I I don't want to say huge, (laughs) that's the wrong word. Um, We have a good base of research already available to us, even as a young sport. And I think that the Olympic committee recognized that. And we're like, let's, let's bring these guys in and just see like, what are you doing? What is a climbing injury? And so my talk, I had the honor (laughs) of representing physical therapists all over the world at the Olympics for climbing. And so my talk originally was called physical therapy for rock climbing. And I had like 15 minutes and I was like, what in the world (laughs) am I going to be able to teach in 15 minutes to the world? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I mean, it wasn't 15 minutes, it was 30, but whatever. Same diff, right? It's not a lot of time to like cover all the bases. And so basically 
my, I felt that my job was to talk about climbing injuries as specific to climbing and kind of implore people to, if you are a practitioner who has a climber come in, like try to view it through the lens of climbing and not through the lens of something else. Like recognize that these people are doing an actual sport and that sport has kind of insane movements. Like we do crazy things with our bodies and climbing injuries are very specific to climbing. And if you don't give climbing that respect, you're not going to treat the injury as well. I mean, Mm. we can kind of cherry pick from other sports, you know, we can pull a little bit from this and pull a little bit from that, but at the end of it, we're only probably giving that injury 50% of the correct treatment that we should be giving it. Got it. So it's, it's really about understanding the demands of our sport and looking at an injury through that lens. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my job at the Olympics was to be like, Hey guys, climbing injuries are weird and we've got to look at what we're doing and that should partially inform your treatment. Mm. Cool. It's, it's uh... It's about fingers actually. So what's that? I talked a lot about fingers, a little bit about shoulders. Okay. Um, Those are the two areas that we have the most evidence for from a climbing injury uh, research basis. Mm -hmm. So tried to keep it as evidence-based as possible. Okay. Well, I have uh, both of those things in my notes here, fingers and shoulders. So maybe we can... Uh, we can get to those later and expand on what you shared at the Olympics a little bit. Um, But yeah, that's so cool. It's so interesting. I mean, I, of course, think that climbers are obsessed because I'm surrounded by obsessed climbers all the time and talk to them. Um, But that's pretty interesting that in the context of Tokyo, like in the context of being at the Olympics, you still felt that difference that climbers are more obsessed than, than a lot of other athletes in other sports. Absolutely. I find that cool. And, that's that's pretty neat. <laughs> Bunch of geeks over that, here. I, I think that even recreational climbers, anyone who is training for climbing, I think you need to start labeling yourself as an athlete. Uh, because my next door neighbor, who is a soccer player, he does not go and deadlift and read about training for soccer on his rest days. And that's such a good point. Yeah, you're so right. So in that sense, like we have to reframe our awareness of ourselves uh, to recognize that we are athletes, we are trying to perform and whatever it is that you decide to supplement in your week or in your day, uh, keep in mind that you have to listen to your body and you are an athlete. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's an empowering message. Yeah. I really like that. And it's so true. Like you don't see that with, uh, I don't know, slow pitch softball or even like mountain biking or things, you know, downhill skiing or things like I, I know some skiers that do some off season training, you know, maybe leading into ski season, they go and do some squats or like the stairmaster thing in the gym. But um, it's, it's not, they're not listening to like ski performance podcasts. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're reading about it. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, my background as a scientist is that like I read research, but I think that if you are, if you're training for climbing and you are reading books and you're listening to podcasts, we should also be reading research mm. because that's where all of the juicy bits are. The really juicy bits. <laughs> okay. Let's circle back to the really juicy bits. I, I think we're going to talk about that a lot in this conversation. Um, but we just rolled right into this, as I like to do. Uh, we've already said our good mornings, but I haven't said Dr. Carrie Cooper. Thank you so much for being here. It's really good to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you too. Yeah. I, I figure as a way to introduce you to uh, to the audience, I think it'd be fun to just hear, we're talking on a Thursday morning, it's nine o'clock right now, mountain time. What am I interrupting? Like, what would a normal Thursday look like in the life of Dr. Carrie Cooper? Are you seeing clients? Are you doing research on your own? Like, what what does a day in the life look like for you? Well, I alter my schedule based on the season. So 9 a.m. is uh, typically that would be the day in the wintertime. Um, or the time in the winter time that I'm seeing clients. Um, like I, there's no way I could meet with you right now. Um, I am totally in it in the clinic. Um, but right now, Tuesdays and Thursday mornings are uh, climbing time now because little cottonwood is in season or it's my time to go to the gym. So if it's really good outside, then I go outside if it's not really good outside. Or if I think that I, need some more supplemental training or my skin is bad or whatever, um, then that's gym time or mobility time that I have set aside. So because today is we're doing this, I spent my morning actually reviewing some really cool articles that I, I want to mention in this podcast because they totally blew my mind. Um, and I love going back to them and like rereading, like, what did they do in their methods? What, uh, what are their participants and what are they doing or how many hours are they training? And, you know, different things like that. I like to, I really like to go back and review things a lot. Um, I joke that I've had too many concussions and I can't, my, uh, my long-term memory is affected. <laughs> what did you get um, all those concussions from? Gymnastics. Oh, and rock climbing. I've been hit oh, in the okay. head with some rocks. So yeah, look out. <laughs> so that's a typical morning. <laughs> okay. Okay. And uh, give us, um, tell me a little bit about what your focus of study was and what you see clients about. Like, is it all physical therapy f for rock climbing injuries? No. So I, as a physical therapist, I have my own clinic um, I also do Pilates for rehabilitation. And so I do a lot of movement re-education as well as um, injury and recovery and rehab. Um, but I will say that because movement is such a big part of my practice, I work it in with everything. Like it, it has, um, it has fingers in every injury that I work with. And so people, I end up doing movement training with people and they have no idea that they're doing movement training unless I tell them. <laughs> I'm curious about that. Can you give me an example? Like what's a, maybe just a recent one that you did where you're kind of like tricking someone into doing movement training. 
Okay. Someone came to me yesterday with a, uh, with some subpatellar chondritis. Um, and that is a really tricky diagnosis to work with. Um, they came to me actually after having seen an orthopedic surgeon who did an x-ray, but didn't do an MRI. So the possible, uh, diagnosis was actually a femoral, um, like a, like basically as a little flapper on the cartilage on his femur, okay. like in his knee. Sorry. I'll try to calm it down. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Use, so, use terms like leg and knee, please. Okay. <laughs> For me. So, yeah. <laughs> your knee in the knee. Sorry. <laughs> so basically my job was to figure out like, okay, where's the flapper and is it affecting his movement? Is it affecting his muscular control or his, um, or his strength. He had great strength. He had great muscle, but for some reason, the joint mechanics were a little funky. And so what I did was I stood him up and I looked at how, when he bends his knees, where his knees go in relation to his ankles and his knees, like immediately when he bent his knees, his knees were going way over his toes. And I was like, Oh, well, this can solve a lot of things. And so basically I just had to teach him how to bend his knees again hmm. without. So, and, and part of that was, can you bend your knees without bending at your back? Like when you go to squat, are you actually squatting with your back and your knees? Or are you bending at your hips? Hmm. So we have this um, kinetic chain that is ankle, knee, hip, not back. <laughs> you don't want to have to bend at your back. There's a certain point in the knee bending motion where your back also bends, but it shouldn't be the first thing that bends. Okay. And so we did, we did some movement re-education where I put him on the Pilates reformer and basically taught him how to, I tricked him into bending at his ankles and his hips. And then we, I stood him up and I taught him how to do it at home so that he can intuitively bend at his hips and his ankles and not just at his knees. And hopefully we can calm that thing down because otherwise surgery for that is not, not optimal. Well, surgery is never totally optimal, but when you need it, you need it. Um, but there are some surgeries that the outcomes are kind of like 50, 50. Okay. So and Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, it's no, it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's great. It's interesting. Um, we've already touched on so much. Where where to go from here? I think um, I, I wanted to ask, like, how what percentage of your client base are climbers? How much time do you spend working with climbers directly? It depends on the week and the month. Okay. So it can be a hundred percent. It can be fifty percent. Um. But it's a lot. Yeah, there are, it's a lot. Yeah. I, I see at least one climber every day. Okay. Uh, way more than that. More than one climber a day. Okay. <laughs> at least two. I will say that I see at least two. Okay. So. Awesome. Um, and <clears throat> one of the things that makes you unique is your background in climbing yourself. Um, you're a very high level climber. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been climbing double digits. Um, Decades. You, you decades. <laughs> you were climbing double digits back when there were very few women bouldering. Period. So that is really cool because um, I, I haven't talked to many people who have the 
the medical pedigree that you have who also have the climbing experience that you have and the interest in hard climbing that you have. So I think that'd be really fun to to explore. And that's one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you. So with that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background in climbing and how it came into your life. And you already mentioned gymnastics. I know you were a dancer as well. And those things in my mind seem like a perfect pairing, you know, like climbing is almost a, a combination of the other two. So what what order did those things come into your life in? Did you start with gymnastics and find your way to climbing? And yeah, where did dance come into the picture? I'd love to hear about your background. It's such a patchwork quilt of activities, isn't it? Um, I started young as a gymnast. I have that to attribute my very tiny stature to. I'm five one with no ape. And uh, I was a gymnast until I was 14. So I was competing at an elite level. Um, I never did collegiate uh, gymnastics, which in my mind is like Olympic level. Um, so I was on the Hong Kong international gymnastics team. I, I competed in Asia. I went to the junior Olympics. Um, did you grow up in Asia? No, I spent two years in Hong Kong. Okay. Correct. But I'm from Kentucky. Okay. And then after that, I came in dance and like in between that time I found climbing. And I think that people have like two dates that they associate with their climbing careers. It's like the date that you were exposed to climbing. And then there's the date that like you became a climber. Mm. And I was exposed to climbing early, like in 1993, I started climbing. Um, the Red River Gorge was really close. Um, I had incredible, incredible climbers all around me, like Katie Brown and, um, and Jason Horvath and, um, people that were winning nationals or, or like what nationals looked like at the time, like sport climbing stuff. Um, Matt Burback, some really amazing people in our sport still. Um, but I was a dancer. And so I went to, uh, I went to high school for dance and then I went to college for dance. And so I'm a classically trained dancer with a modern dance background. Okay. What? Is, <laughs> that's awesome. What does that mean? <laughs> um, gosh, what does that mean for me now? Or what does that mean? Like, what did, what did that look like at the time? Were you preparing solo pieces for solo performances or were you part of a dance team? I'm completely ignorant with, with this. Okay. So it's like an art school. We have like a, there's a drama department. There's a dance department. There's a music department. There's a film department. Like I went to school with Danny McBride. I don't know. Wow. Like we hung out together. So, and a a bunch of, anyway, um, (laughs) we, so this is like very intense dance. I would dance. I mean, I think I went to, I had academics for like three hours And then I would dance until I think we were in class until four or so. And then we would have rehearsals. And I am, I'm a person who really likes to practice movement until I nail it. And so I would be taught something in class or I'd be taught something in rehearsal. And then I would be in the studio until like nine or 10 at night, just nailing it down 
over and over and over again. And a lot of practice of that movement in front of a mirror with other people or by myself. Um, Sometimes I would get bored of practicing the thing and I would just start improvising my own movement. And so I did a lot of choreography as well. Um, But I have, I've been able to dance with some very incredible dancers and dance choreographers and directors. So it was probably the, the thing that other than physical therapy, the thing that I am the best at was mm. a good dancer. <laughs> I'm not as good of a, of a climber. Maybe that's what keeps pulling me to climbing is that it um, like dance didn't hold my attention as much as climbing does. Mm. It's climbing is a constant challenge. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us can. I think the people that have to work extra hard for it tend to be the ones that are the most obsessed and the most hungry. Um, <clears throat> where did, where did dance end up? Like, did you reach a, a stopping point? Like, what did that look like? Uh, climbing ruined my dance. Okay. <laughs> so, climbing ruined your I, dance. Perfect. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, oh gosh, that, that was crazy. I studied in Sweden and the, it was really expensive to rent a studio space and dance in it. And so I ended up, one of my friends was like, Hey, do you want to go to this climbing gym? It's, it was not even a gym. They were like, do you want to go to this climbing wall? It was in a gymnasium that like had, uh, it had like tanning beds and a racquetball court. And, um, but it was really cool because you could hang out with Swedish people. And so by going to this climbing gym and climbing on like emboldering, you were around a different culture and it, you were accepted into that culture because you had this um, common thing that was climbing. And so um, that actually was the most interesting to me, like um, not to not answer your question, but I, I want to say that, like, I think the thing that really caught me and pulled me into climbing was not necessarily the movement of climbing at first. It was, the cultures and the people that it, you could be exposed to. Mm. Um, like I traveled a lot when I first started climbing and, you know, I was welcomed into scenes all over the world and it was, it was like very sick. It, it, there was a lot of success there and there was a lot of comfort there and it was super fun. So that, that kept me coming back for more. It's almost like a mutual language that we all speak, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I love that about it. Like as you well. can go anywhere. And if you meet other climbers, you're probably going to get along. On yeah. Some level. Yeah. You're going to understand each other pretty well, mm-hmm. even with the language barrier, cultural barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I guess what I was getting at with that, with that question is like, did you envision dance becoming a profession, being a profession? And did you reach like a decision moment where you had to choose whether to continue with it or pivot to something else? Um, I did. There were two moments where I had to make a decision. The first one was I incurred a really bad back injury one day uh, during class and um, ended up having to kind of drop out a little bit 
um, I herniated a couple of discs in my back and I didn't know at the time that I had, it's called a spondylolisthesis. It's where your vertebra is not actually attached to the sticky waypoint. And so it like moves a lot. Um, and so I kind of had these two competing diagnoses that were making my rehab really difficult and it was really hard to get back to dance. And that's actually how I found Pilates because that was the only thing that I was able to kind of stabilize the area in order to start dancing again. Um, and then during that process, I started to pick back up with climbing because it was kind of the movement that I could do. Um, so I guess I've always rehabbed injuries through climbing. <laughs> like, um, yeah. And then the second time was after I had already, like, I'd already graduated school and had gotten another injury. <laughs> so I couldn't dance again. I tore my ACL for the first time actually in a climbing gym in like 2001, I think. And, um, so when I did get back to dance status, I went to New York, I had been invited to come and, um, audition for this company called Momix. And I went to New York and I like got in the cab at the airport and, I had just been hanging out in Boone, North Carolina, like in the woods, climbing on sandstone boulders. And I got in this cab in New York City and I was like, I do not want to be here. And that pretty much like I actually showed up at the audition. I was like, you guys, I'm so sorry, but I can't be here. And I, I said, no, my best friend was there and she was auditioning, too. And I was like, Abe, I can't do this. And I just left. Um, I to this day, I don't feel bad about that decision. Hmm. What was it? Was it being in the city and the contrast between the city and being out in the woods? I think so. Yeah, the woods. Um, I think even now, I I just need light around me. Like I've been in inside a studio with no light. <laughs> For a really long time. I mean, I, I was, I spent a lot of my life inside. And so at that point where I was an adult, I could make my own decisions. And I found this thing that I could do outside that I enjoyed it. Well, yeah, that was it. I was hooked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and have you always mostly focused on bouldering or been drawn most to bouldering? Yes. Okay. Why, why is that? Because that was... I mean, that's, that seems maybe more normal now, but that was pretty unique Definitely at the time or that set you apart at the time. You mentioned Katie Brown and, you know, she was yeah. one of the top climbers at the time, but um, I at least think of her as spending a lot of time at the red and sport climbing. So what was mm -hmm. it about bouldering and what was the, maybe paint the scene for us. Like, what was that like being a woman climbing as hard as you were at the time? Ooh, those are two different things. Those are two different things. Let's start with the first one. I tend to ask too many questions at the once. Scene, the scene was great. So there was such a small crew of people who were bouldering at the time that like, I mean, it, so small. You would go, I think that, gosh, um, I can I can talk a little bit about like the scene in Waco, for example. Um, there were, there was a, a small scene. It, we would joke around and call ourselves like America's fit homeless because <laughs> we would just go 
to Waco for the season. And then when it got too hot, we'd go to like Bishop or we go to Squamish and it, but it was the same people everywhere. What and year so, was this or what years? Two, early 2000. So okay. like 2002, I think got somewhere it. around there. Um, and, <laughs> and you, you ask about being a, a woman or being one of the few females, uh, bouldering. We, we may have been a small crew, but we were mighty. And <laughs> the, yes. We all had, we were all super driven to like climb the best that we could or climb as hard as we could. And it wasn't necessarily the most supportive environment. Like I would say that at the crag between women, it was not supportive period. Mm. Um, But outside of that, it was like, it was still a community of individuals and uh, we were all the funny thing is like that group of women, like say there were probably six women total at Waco in a season. <laughs> and four of those six women were under five, three. And so we were looking for our own climbs. And like, if I heard that Heather was over there, like trying speed bump, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go try that. Or like, you know, choir boys or, you know, something else. We would all like kind of gravitate towards similar problems. I think because we were all the same size. And uh, it wasn't until later on that like, um, I even looked, I even started like looking for longer problems or taller problems or you know, like my, my vision definitely changed. We were definitely like trying the same problems, maybe not together, but there was a lot of drive. <laughs> um, do you have a most, do you have a proudest achievement from that time frame, or yeah, like a, like a real highlight that stands out oh to you God. from that time? Too many? We narrow down the time. Like, where, <laughs> where, where are we talking about here? <laughs> I guess what I'm curious about is like, what what kind of um, level were you climbing at at the time, and what was the what was the paradigm? Like, how was your climbing looking projecting. in the context of what's that? I love projecting. Okay. So um, I have flashed. I think I actually flashed my first V10, but it's such a trash V10 that I don't even want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, that actually was the situation was more pivotal than the number. So I was in Waco climbing with a bunch of guys and we were all at ministry of truth. And it's like a V9, maybe like, big power move. It's like one big campus move, but it was a very big move to establish. And I got super frustrated and these guys are just, you know, throwing and throwing, but it's uh, in this cave. And so it's cold <laughs> and I got frustrated and I walked out of the cave and there's just this sunny patio and it's beautiful. And I just took a moment and I took a deep breath and I turned around and there's this climb I didn't know what it was, but it had the smallest holds I think I've ever seen on a climb. And it just spoke to me. And I was like, huh, that looks cool. 
I think I'm going to climb it. I don't even think I had a crash pad. And I just like pulled onto it. And I can't remember if I did one move or if I just fired the whole thing, but I remember like just doing moves and like the first move went and I was like, awesome. And the second move went and I just kept doing moves. And then I was at the top (laughs) and it was just this experience where I had chosen my own thing. I had walked away from frustration and I had success on something. And I think that somebody was like, oh my gosh, that's a V10 or whatever. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) Wow. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) And so like, it just sort of opened my mind to be like, if a climb speaks to me, I'm going to try it. Mm. And the funny thing was, is that at that time, V10 was speaking to me. I like I didn't care about V9. I didn't care about V11. I didn't care about any of the numbers actually. Um, and that, that's kind of still how I roll. Like I'll walk into a place and if something speaks to me, I'll just try to climb it. Um, and so during that time, I ended up doing quite a few V10s and probably a bunch of other stuff too. Like if I looked at my Waco guidebook. Just because those are the things that were speaking to you at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And I was following other women too, like Anna Burgos, who was just super crusher leading the way. Yeah. Um, trying to keep up with her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <clears throat> well, I promise we're going to talk about injuries and, and research and things like that. Um, but this is really fun. And I have to ask one more question about this because... You know, I'm always interested in climbers that get relatively good or very good at climbing relatively quickly where mm-hmm. they're drawing from because climbing's so unique, as you've already mentioned in this conversation. Like I came from soccer and baseball and some weightlifting in high school and some pole vaulting and and very few of the things that I built into my into my body and the things that I um, was doing when I was developing serve me in climbing, you know, and I look at gymnasts and I'm like, Ooh, that's pretty good. You know, that's a, that's a pretty good set of skills and strengths to draw from into climbing. Dance seems like that as well. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to ask, like, what are the things that you, that have served you best from both gymnastics and from dance? And this can be physiological things or, mobility movement things, or just like mindset things, the way you approach climbing. Are there a few things that come to mind that stand out at the top of that list? I don't know if it's my background in gymnastics, but I've always been quick with uh, building muscle. I think it's also just my physiology. Um, So I, I build big muscle quickly. Like, so biceps, I've always had biceps. I think I was like in second grade and I could do like 25 pull-ups. Whoa. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Not that many, <laughs> but a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. But you get the point. Um, so I think that yes, genetically, I do have the ability to put on muscle quickly. And so that already, uh, kind of drives me towards things that are a bit more power oriented and that's bouldering. Mm. Um, as far as dance goes, I will dance in gymnastics. I, I was stretched as a child, so I have super, mo- I'm incredibly mobile, almost too mobile that I have to like hold everything together. And that also serves me, um, climbing serves 
serves the instability that comes from being really hypermobile, but also the mobility serves climbing mm. in that I can get into positions, um, but I have to be strong in those positions or I get injured. Um, and I can, I think that that is also the case for most people anyway, um, just in like a different um, way, I guess. Um, the mindset aspect is, yeah, I think that if I see a goal, I have kind of a singular focus driven mentality where like, if I see that I have a goal, I will kind of adjust what I'm doing in order to achieve that goal. And like I said earlier, I really like projecting and it, it's almost gotten to the point where I will project something so much that it does become a dance. There's a flow to it. And a lot of the things that I have projected the longest, I can just do on repeat. Mm. Like it's super weird. Like I'll, I'll do something like I did this thing recently. It's called the nest egg up in little cottonwood and it's a morpho climb. Like if you're taller, it's easier. And I practiced that thing so much that when I finally did it, I got to the top and I was like, was that from the bottom? Did I just do that? Like, it felt so easy Mm. that I came back down and I did it two more times. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that like, that's my dance background is that Mm. you just, you practice and you practice and you practice. But also what I've tried to do probably in the last five to six years is just try a little harder. Like I don't have to practice it that much. If sometimes I'm like, all right, I have tried this thing a hundred times. I am falling off this spot. There is, and I can do that, that in isolation. I just have to try harder. And so sometimes I just have to switch the mindset of I'm practicing climbing to I'm going to send this right now. Mm. And I have to put myself in a certain mental space in order to do that because it's not my intuitive approach to sending a boulder. Like I have to actually start a conversation with the people around me. This is number one. So I almost have to like sneak up on the boulder problem. (laughs) You know, I'm like, we're having a conversation. It's lively. It's going on. Nobody's paying attention. Boulder problem. And then I go and I get on the boulder problem and I'm like still kind of having a conversation with the people behind me. And I just do the boulder problem. <laughs> Interesting. So you're like tricking yourself out of overthinking it or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sneak up on it. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I can relate. I mean, it's it makes sense to me, like coming from your dance background and being obsessed with perfecting the choreography and the movement. Um, that I, I'm, I'm different. I'm not a dancer, but I'm similar in that I'm an engineer and I'm obsessed about efficiency and I'm always trying to, I'm, I think of myself as a technician. I'm always trying to like perfect the movements on the climb. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with hard climbing, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be scrappy and you just need to, yeah. you know, drop the clutch and try really, really hard. Yes. And that's the part that probably comes less intuitive, less intuitively to me and often involves like a shift in mindset, like you said, as well. I think it's important to kind of note how many times you've fallen off of one spot and notice that like, if you just keep falling there, but you can do it in isolation, it might not be that you don't have the strength or you don't have the ability or you don't have the technique, but it's just that the approach is off. 
And so you have to like go, okay, <laughs> switch it up. Let's go. Let's go mode. <laughs> I like it. Put it in fifth. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about sciencey stuff. Let's talk about oh, <laughs> physical therapy. Um, <clears throat> so you're studying dance and climbing steals you away from that. How does physical therapy come into your life? And um, I want to make sure I I have your qualifications right. Are you a doctor of physical therapy? And what does the path look like to get there? Does that involve like pre-med and and medical school or is it a different path? Um, Yeah. What started you on that path and what did that look like? So I am a doctor of physical therapy. Um, It is a clinical doctorate. So we go to school, we get our um, undergrad degree. And then for some people, they go directly into PT school. Um, And PT school is three years, about, uh, depends on the program. But uh, you go three years, at least the program that I went to, you go three years, uh, like, consistently. You don't take any breaks or anything. Um, And then after that, some people go into, like, a a residency program or a fellowship. And... um, And then they go from there. But for me, I specialized while I was in school. Um, I concurrently did my Pilates for rehabilitation. And I also did a pelvic health certification. Uh, So right directly when I got out of school, I actually did pelvic health. Um, I was... So I have two kids and I, my son was three months old when I started PT school. And probably the thing that I was the most interested in at that moment was how do I get back climbing post-pregnancy? And so I think it was like my first week of PT school that I went in and I talked to um, the Dean of our program or the head of our program. And I was like, what's available? can I go and work with a PT who's working with athletes, which spoiler alert at that time, absolutely did not exist. (laughs) Athletes, what they get pregnant, what? (laughs) Hmm. Um, And so uh, that was my focus was how like kind of postpartum return to sport. I did my, my thesis work on diastasis, uh, the rectus abdominis that occurs during pregnancy. So that's like the, um, where the two halves of your abdominal wall, they, they don't get separated necessarily. The connective tissue actually slackens. And so, um, like, how do we get our core back? Um, so I looked at that for my thesis and the program that I was in at the time was very research um, based and they, they said that, you know, physical therapists don't often do research and we have a lot of questions. And when you have a question about an injury, the first thing that you do is you go to the NCBI or the database and you plug in the population that you're working with, the injury that you're in, that you're interested in and the activity that they're doing. And so I would look up like pregnant or postpartum rock climber rehab and nothing would come up (laughs) or I would look up, you know, later on, it would be, uh, climbing finger injuries. And there were like three articles. And so, um, I think 
in physical therapy school that I went to, they really, uh, they were big promoters of if there isn't research available for the thing that you're interested in, it's your job to do the research. Mm. And so I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I don't know, did that answer your question? Sure. Like yeah. you get your doctorate and then they like set you free in the world and you still have questions. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your doctorate. Go answer your own questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have some listener questions for you and I want to ask one of them now, cause it feels really timely with what you were just talking about. This is from Casca and Casca asked, how did Carrie's climbing and recovery compare between the two pregnancies? Ooh, wow, that's an amazing question. So my first pregnancy was um, in 2005. And at the time, the American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology, it's ACOG, um, they, their guidelines for exercise during pregnancy was don't do anything. Mm. You can walk, but that's it. Everything else can cause problems in your pregnancy. And I was an elite athlete. Like I was, I was climbing five to six days a week. I was traveling for climbing. I was training for climbing. Climbing was everything. And then suddenly it was like, do not do any exercise full stop. And it was awful. Um, My pregnancy was really uncomfortable. I ended up like having to go on bed rest. And then I had terrible labor and it was really um, just an an assault to my, my body's norm. And so after it took me, gosh, we started taking our baby like on the road pretty immediately. We were set, we were really um, motivated (laughs) dirtbags. And um, when Sebastian came around. Um, I vowed that I was not going to do it the same way. I did involve my, um, my obstetrician the whole time. My OBGYN throughout my pregnancy, she knew exactly what I was doing. We talked it through, you know, I would present some, some arguments to her. I would be like, okay, this, this is what I'm going to be doing. I didn't tell her necessarily (laughs) that I was going to be putting on a harness and doing sport climbs. But I was like, okay, here is what is happening to the baby. Um, is this okay? Like, can I get my heart rate up? Is that okay? Can I use my abdominals? Is that okay? Um, I'm not falling at no point in time. Am I falling? Like this was very controlled climbing. I was an elite level I was, you know, I did everything in my power to make it as controlled as possible. And after, and it was a fairly publicized um, pregnancy, actually, I was in USA Today, along with this marathon runner who did, I think she did the Boston, she was like 34 weeks pregnant or something, which is way more badass in my opinion. Um, but what it did was it kind of put this pressure, I think on the medical field to be like, okay, let's look at what our guidelines are. These people are doing this. Is this actually okay? Like, let's, 
let's revisit this and let's test it and see how it goes. Mm. And they did a lot of reviewing and testing and they changed their guidelines to include that if you are pregnant, you can do the activity that you were already doing given certain risk factors. And so that that's a huge change since my pregnancy, regardless of what mine was like, but I got back to climbing. Uh, well, I had a C-section, so that was, it took me a little while and I don't do well with surgery. Um, so it took me a little bit longer than what a normal delivery would look like, I think, to return back to climbing. Um, but the experience of being pregnant and climbing was, it just made my pregnancy. I loved, I loved that pregnancy. It was Mm. very enjoyable. Does that answer the question? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it does. I'd love to ask this as well. Um, In hindsight, what are the things like, were there any firm lines that you would draw, you know, like it's okay to do some climbing. You said you never fell ever. You would never fall, but it's okay to, or you're asking the questions, is it okay to get my heart rate up? Is it okay to use my abdominals? Um, What are the firm lines that you decided that you wouldn't cross or that you wouldn't cross if you were to do it again? Um, Well, you're not just climbing for you anymore. Like when you're pregnant, you're, you're responsible for now two lives. And so I'm not for myself. The thing that was easiest in deciding where to draw that line was my, my saying was just climb like honey. And that's what I would kind of repeat to myself. So it should feel easy. It should feel like flowy and maybe slow. Nothing is like forced or like really, you know, I'm not bearing down and I'm not pushing really hard um, because that often caused me SI joint pain. Um, And so I, I knew that I had some physiologic things going on already that if I did certain things would exacerbate them. And I knew that even before my second pregnancy. So I had those things in mind and it was very much like supportive rather than I'm pushing myself to achieve. Mm. It was like, this is something that is supporting my pregnancy and supporting my health and hopefully making it so that this entire experience is more enjoyable for me and more healthy for my child. Mm. So I can't really give you like hard parameters. Um, and I don't want to because a, it's not my, I I don't think that we should be like telling women what to do with their bodies and everybody's body is different and every pregnancy is different. And you have to know what your risk factors are, what your situation is, how you're feeling. Um, and so given like black and white parameters that gets that gets a little tricky. yeah yeah sure yeah yeah i understand that that th- thank you for that that's really helpful to share just how you were thinking about that at the time um i'm curious what came out of your research do you have published research now that you created that talks about postpartum climbing recovery or or what came out of that 
that thesis and your research before or during or after schooling? You know, that I didn't publish anything from that. It was, it is peer reviewed. I mean, it's not peer reviewed. It was reviewed by a panel and my entire PT school class. Um, So it's a little bit like uh, defending your doctoral thesis to get your PhD. But in this case, we weren't doing actual research. And so I didn't publish anything. It was more of a very involved informal study. Okay. So unfortunately, sorry, everyone. (laughs) Not available. (laughs) Well, let's dive into what research we do have as climbers, because that was something that really caught my attention the first time you and I talked. Um, I was kind of under the impression that we had almost no research specific to rock climbing. Like the only things I'm aware of are a couple research papers around finger injuries and the work that um, Eva Lopez has done on finger strength training. And I I haven't looked, I haven't really looked for climbing specific research, but I just kind of assumed there wasn't any or there wasn't very much. One of the things that you said, I think in an email to me was, as far as this conversation goes, you and I were talking about what we should cover because there's so much we could cover. You said that I'd like to stick to subjects that we have empirical evidence for because it seems to me that this is the thing that your listeners are missing the most, fact checking. So to start this research conversation and and, um, talking about articles and and what we have, empirical evidence, I'd love to just get your philosophy on that. And if I wonder if you could just expand on that statement a little bit more. Like what is what is it that you think we're missing? or should be paying more attention to as a climbing community? Um, I think that there is a lot of white noise out there. Like there are, there's a lot of expert opinion or opinion being talked about without a lot of reference to science that exists. And the part of the community who is paying attention to this stuff I think that they're, it, it makes them more well-rounded and it's very important that if you have a question about something that you have the right, you're asking the right questions. So, um, as far as the evidence that we do have the body of knowledge from about 2000 until 2006 is not a ton, but it creates a really strong basis for what we do have now. And I think it's important to know where we came from and how we arrived where we are. Um, Starting about 2006, we get this huge uh, jump in the amount of research that we have. And then like 2018, it just has been skyrocketing. So there are groups in Germany and Switzerland, and there's a growing community in South America who are doing really cool research. And they are looking at things that are um, integral to understanding climbing injuries and also climbing training. There's There are scientists out there who have been looking at like biomechanics and the force production capabilities of tendons and muscles since like 2005. So um, 
I think the coolest stuff that's coming out right now, uh, I just read a couple of pieces. Um, Andreas Schweitzer, who is, he's been doing research for a long time and go back and read his stuff. It's awesome. Um, but he has been working with a couple of groups. The first group was a long-term uh, soft tissue adaptation in climbers' fingers. The other one is soft tissue adaptation, a long-term study of climbers' shoulders. And we have a lot of evidence for the rate of injury. So how often certain injuries occur, what those injuries are, and when when they happen and who they happen to. So we actually know that we have a really high likelihood of certain injuries and a really low likelihood of certain injuries. So as a, as a practitioner, as a coach, or as a person who is advising other people, if somebody comes to you and they're like, oh, I have shoulder pain. If you're not a practitioner, it is not your job to diagnose. If you are a coach and you know that the likelihood of that shoulder injury is one of these two things, then you can better, um, it, it informs your coaching and the activities that you give your athletes. Or if you're a trainer, you can adjust the load or intensity or the type of exercise that you're having people do given a certain injury. So like, if we know that the highest likelihood um, is that somebody gets uh, bicep tendinopathy in their long head, then maybe you can take uh, kettlebell swings out or like big campus moves or anything that is going to, or like reaches out to the side, or you just drop down the volume a little bit. Um, but you, you don't have to knowing these things doesn't mean that you have to be treating them, but knowing these things makes you a better trainer, coach, climber, PT, mm. doctor. <laughs> and we have a lot of evidence for it. So um, my colleagues and I did, we even did a study about the acute knee injuries in bouldering and sport climbing. So we've started in on the knee. We've started in on the hip. We started in on things to just understand like, what are we injuring? Like, okay, climbing is weird. Climbing injuries are weird, but how are they weird? What are we doing? Um, and so, and we even have age parameters. So it's important to know the likelihood of injury. Um, I'll give, I'll give an example. So if you are a coach who's working with adolescent climbers, and an adolescent climber comes to you and they say, I have finger pain. We have a large body of evidence that shows us that that finger pain is either it's a cortical bruising or it's an epiphyseal fracture. Kids do not get finger tendon pulley injuries. They get fractures. And so, you know, that if they start to have pain that you've got to, you know, bump it back on the um, overhanging climbs or full crimping, or if you're having them do certain skill training, you have to change, change your methods. They don't necessarily at first, if it's just like a little irritation of the cartilage, um, you don't have to take climbing away completely, 
But if they have an epiphyseal fracture, yes, that's six to eight weeks of no climbing and putting in a splint. And it's really easy if you know that that's the case and somebody comes to you, it really takes the guesswork out of it. And you're treating your athlete with the best knowledge possible. You know, you just, you just know things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So if a coach out there or a trainer out there is listening to this and they haven't spent time in the climbing specific research, where do they go? Where do you go to find this stuff? Oh, this is the problem. <laughs> um, um, I think that there are other practitioners out there who are also trying to make this not a problem, but a lot of the research is only available to people who have an institutional ID, which I think is a bunch of BS. Um, and however, when new research comes out, usually for like 30 to 90 days, it's free access. So really what we've got to have is, um, that like, you've got to know right when it happens so that you can access it. Um, and maybe that's my job. Maybe that is a database's job. Um, I, I don't know. We have a website that we are, it's, I have a passion project and maybe part of the passion project should be that when this new research comes out, it just, you know, here's the NCBI web address and you can go to it and read it. Like, look here, it, you can follow some of these researchers on Instagram and they will put their new research up, but it means you kind of, kind of be on it. So um, I don't have a good answer for you on that right now. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Um, Where does one get access to the free research when it first comes out? Like, and, and I guess maybe another question before you answer that is, you know, we're talking to coaches and trainers and PTs potentially in this conversation, but mostly we're talking to climbers to athletes who just want to get better, stay injury free, maybe rehab an Mm -hmm. injury that they have. Where do those people go to see what's coming out, what the latest research is? And how important is that for the actual climbers? Like, is that, you know, has that really informed, has reading research informed your own climbing? And do you wish you'd done more of it earlier? And is that helpful for the average person? Or is this more for the clinician that's going to help you get better? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, My practice is so entwined with my climbing at this point that I haven't unpacked that. I published an article in the Journal of Hand Therapy um, after years of looking at climbing finger injuries. It is a classification schematic for Um, dividing A2 pulley strains into severity categories so that you can appropriately load or not load or treat depending on severity. And the reason why I bring that up right now is that um, in, in doing that, I had to read a lot of articles to understand what positions were best for loading the pulley, depending on severity and depending on time. 
And that meant that I had to read stuff in biomechanics journals. So Laurent Vigoureau is an incredible researcher. He's also like an off the couch V11 climber, um, which is amazing. Um, but knowing the force, the forces that act on the pulleys and the forces that act on the tendons, given the grip position, absolutely informs my climbing. So if I have a little bit of a tweak in anything, it could be my fingers, it could be my shoulders. I always try to, you know, quote unquote, walk it off. So I have methods where I have developed ways to essentially reset my body. So like, say I, I hurt my shoulder or like I have a little tweak. I'm going to decide, okay, do I just need to stretch it? Or do I need to have a little bit of load? And I definitely draw on the science, but I don't know that everybody needs to do that. I just think that we need to be as a community applying the science to what we're doing. And I don't think we're doing that yet. Mm, okay. So I think that's what I meant by, okay, let's, let's go through the white noise a little bit and try to fact check because there are a ton, we have a ton of knowledge that we're not using right now. And I really think that we should be. So, yeah, I think if, if you are in the position of, um, like if you have athletes or you are taking care of somebody else and somebody else's body, you should be reading the research. You, mm -hmm. you should definitely, I'm going to put that out there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and that can come, you know, um, I wasn't a part of an institution when I first started and I would just go to Google scholar and plug in whatever it was that I wanted to know about. And if I couldn't access that piece of literature, I would contact the person directly and just have them send it to me. And a lot of times, especially at first, oh my gosh, it was like reading stereo instructions. Like I would start going through it and I didn't know what anything was and I had to look everything up. And so it really is a enrichment process mm. when you're reading this stuff. And I just can't see that it won't be positive for you. Um, climbing athletes really want to know everything. <laughs> and so, yeah, climbers should be reading research. Come on, guys. Let's go. <laughs> I think um, I think I agree with you. I think one one thing that's really coming you to disagree mind. disagree with me. It's fine. No, I, I agree with you, but I have a hang up. And the hang up is that there's there's so much, you know, there, there's, I don't know how much there is in climbing specifically, but, um, I got really geeked out on nutrition, what I should be eating. Oh, and, and was, yeah. And um, I think that literature is so hard because the words are like, you know, 70 syllables. You go some neat, blah, 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 minus three. <laughs> come on <laughs> yeah and i mean nutritional research is also really difficult to do it's it's hard to control all the factors you know you can't it's, oh, it's incredibly yeah. expensive expensive to have people in a metabolic ward and like really make them eat a certain way for long periods of time so lots of it's observational um i don't think that's the case with musculoskeletal it's true I, yeah i think that yes you know i love to treat people on a case-by-case -case basis but knowing that we all have the same anatomy mm. kind of like 
you know, makes the nuance not so insane yeah. and overwhelming, you know, yeah. like we, we do. And we're the research that we have is looking at many people like Volker Stoffel's classification for his pulley. Um, it, it's really a surgical classification. And that's why I came up with my classification was that mine is more conservative treatment and functional for like athletes who are needing to use their fingers on a day-to-day basis. But like Volker is a, is an orthopedic surgeon and he needs to know when it's appropriate to do surgery. Um, and so, yeah, like we have these, these studies that are coming out from Schweitzer and Froelich, like they are, there are 30 climbers that they've been following for 10 years who have been climbing for 30 years, which is the same amount of time that I have. They climb the same stuff that I do. They are, it's basically me in that study. And I know that like, I trained the same amount of hours and we climbed the same stuff and their shoulders look like this. And I know that my shoulders look like that. And yes, I might have a little bit of a labral thing here, but they're still climbing these things and some things we care about and some things. I think that knowing what is normal for climbers, so many people jump really quickly to MRI Mm. or even to ultrasound. And the truth is, is that you only really need to get an MRI if you're pretty darn sure that you need surgery. Mm. Like it is not that useful for treatment. Okay. And I think that a lot of people, when they get injured, they get scared because they, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't climb. I can't do the thing that I want to do. It's messing up my season. I have all these plans. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I gotta go get an MRI. Mm-hmm. Really, we don't. We um, we know what gets injured, and if we know what gets injured most often, um, we also know how to treat that conservatively. And sometimes it does take a little time, and it's not going to be the end of your climbing career. Deep breaths. <laughs> this is great. I'm I'm kind of refining my, I have like a question in my mind. I'm kind of refining it as, as you're talking. And I think I have a better, um, I think I have the question now that I, that I was kind of trying to ask before. My point with the nutrition thing is that when I, whenever I have gone into research, it's just so easy to get totally overwhelmed. And yeah. I, I wonder how you would guide climbers listening to this through uh, what they should spend their time reading. Um, I don't want to spend all my time reading research. I don't have the time to do that. I'm sure a lot of people, even if they're hungry for information, you know, they want to go to someone like you who's already done that and knows how to say, here's what the research says and here's how we can, here's how it's relevant to you and me and us and how we can actually do better in our practice or in our rehab moving forward. What would your recommendations be for people that just want to improve their understanding of physiology when it comes to climbing or who want to, who are interested in research? Is it just waiting until they have an injury and just making sure that they go see what's already out there before just going and getting an MRI at the doctor? Do you have any thoughts on where people start? 
you know, I don't, I don't want people to be frustrated or intimidated or overwhelmed by, by all of this. And, um, I think that we should be excited about it. Um, but not intimidated by the fact that we have so much information. I think that what we really need to do is just rely a little bit more heavily on our trusted practitioners, the people that are really uh, verbal in the community. We need to be skeptical and make them be as transparent as possible with where they're getting their information so that they are the ones that are actually teaching us. Mm. Um, so it's not, I guess, you know, it's not really the climber's job to be up on all of this science. Like that might be asking way too much of people. Um, but the people who are the loudest certainly have to be like, we, we need to be relying on them and kind of pushing them a little bit to be like, Hey, set your source. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah. So maybe that takes it out of, out of the climber's hands a little bit. Um, just kind of lessens the pressure. Yeah. I think that I, I like working with national teams because they have such strong teams, like all of those athletes that are high, um, performance, like they all have, they have full-on teams. And that's not something that we can all do. First of all, from a financial standpoint, second of all, that's their job. But when we look at like what the high level athletes are doing, we can kind of take little pieces of it. Like we can fit in a little bit of that into our own lives at whatever like financial level you can or time level you can. And you know, these teams or these athletes, they have massage therapists, they have physios, they have coaches, they have trainers, they have trainers who are different than their coaches. They have coaches who are different than their coaches. They have like (laughs) full on teams. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. Yeah. And, um, but when they, when they look at how they want to achieve a goal, they set it up so that they can achieve it with all of these possible things in mind, like, okay, what if I get injured? Who am I going to talk to? Like, okay. If they have a question, what resource did I, do I go to? And so they kind of like have this forethought before they even attempt the thing that they want to do. Um, so maybe I think that it's, it's really important to rely on the experts that we rely on, but we do need to be questioning and making sure that they are truly up on it. That's a good lead in. I, I wanted to ask you this. There's a strength coach whose work I followed for a long time, very closely. His name's Charles Poliquin. Um, he's, he's passed away, the late Charles Poliquin. And he was always very deeply immersed in research and would reference it. But he had this saying, he would always say that the clinician's always ahead of the curve, meaning that people that are out there in the field working with athletes all the time, whether that's in a rehab setting or in a strength training or in a coaching setting, those are the people that are experimenting and trying things and finding things that work and don't work 
And very often the research follows that. So someone will notice that something seems to work. They want to understand why, or they want to play with it. And then they take that into a research setting and test it and come out of it with data. But, you know, his point was that the clinicians are not waiting around for the, for the newest research to come out before they decide to try something new with with a client if what they're doing isn't working. So I'd love to hear, you know, as far as experts go and in, in trusting experts versus when do we push back and challenge them to share their source? I mean, there's a lot of things that have been kind of tried and true that experts can teach us through the experience they've gained from working with hundreds of athletes over, you know, decades of of coaching or training or whatever. Like there's a lot of stuff we know about getting stronger in climbing. A lot of stuff that I've learned and people have learned through this podcast, just talking to a lot of really damn good climbers that we don't have research for, you know, like, but we know that if you spend time on the moon board, you get better at jumping to holds and holding swings and getting powerful and getting strong fingers and things like that. Um, so I, I'd love to hear how you would think about like the balance there are there are there certain as, as far as like wanting people to be more to have more scrutiny and to fact check and and to push back a little bit or question what they're hearing from experts because the problem with everything i'm saying is that there's people on the internet that can pretend to be experts without all that experience and that's where things and i can... think that's what i'm getting at okay i think okay. that's really the source of it is that there are a lot of really loud people out there that in my mind, wow, they are missing a sadly. It, it, it is very frustrating mm -hmm. to me. And I think that is exactly where I'm coming from is that people need to be impeccable with their word. And if you're saying that you know something, you better know it because <laughs> you've got yeah. a huge, you've got a growing population who's relying on you. And so, you know, and I think that climbers are really smart. And at some point in time, we're going to see through some of this BS, but it's really difficult to watch um, given that I know that that person or those people are wrong mm. and they're not even willing to have the conversation that, oh, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You know, it's just the egos are really strong right now, but um, I Totally agree with you that yes, as, as people who are working with like in the clinic or in the climbing gym or whatever, yeah, we experiment all the time, but I always look and make sure that something doesn't already exist that I can base that treatment on, or I can at least base it on something that like really makes my life a lot easier if I don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. Mm. And we are growing so fast as a community of thinking athletes that it's imperative that we start writing things down. And as you're finding things that are working, like let's test those things. Let's start sharing our information and start testing it. See if it does work because right now we've got a lot of people who are experimenting and maybe so-and-so had really positive outcomes, but maybe so-and-so didn't with that. And the results are not consistent, but there's still there is still success within them. And so we want to be more consistent and we want everybody. It's not fun to be the only one who's achieving. 
like the people who are like climbing the hardest, some of them are running out of climbs to do. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, we need more people who were climbing at that level so that these people stay in the field. Like we need, and they give back to us, you know, like it's a give and a take and it's a community. And if we're constantly just trying to do our own thing all the time, um, that's one thing, you know, if you're just, if you just want to rock climb, like, Oh, Carrie, stop talking. I just want to rock climb. I don't care about all this other stuff. I just want to enjoy my climbing. Great. Awesome. But there's a huge community out there that wants to have results. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are the people that are listening to this podcast Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you don't get results from just, you know, throwing paint at the wall. You mentioned seeing a lot of stuff online and and just feeling frustrated by it, the BS out there. I'm not asking you to call anybody out or anything like that, but I would love to hear, like, are there things that pop up most commonly that you cringe at? Like, is is there, are there things that people are telling to climbers or that have become kind of ubiquitous as far as we all accept it as good advice that you have a problem with or you would push back on? Anything come to mind? I think the first thing is taping fingers, taping fingers. Um, Okay. Taping fingers. Yeah. There's a chronic injury that I call finger taping. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I sent this boulder problem because I taped my finger. And so now I shall tape my finger every time I go rock climbing. Um, Finger taping is not necessary. It doesn't prevent injury. No taping prevents injury. However, Some taping can support injury healing, specifically H-tape. We have good evidence for that. Um, And other times, like say you're doing a deadlift and it's like your max deadlift and you don't want to blow your discs out. So you put on a, um, like one of those belts around you, Mm -hmm. you can occasionally tape your fingers for support on a climb, which is at your max, but that should not, absolutely not be the first thing that you do when you start rock climbing. And I think that we have this, uh, like, I don't want to think about my injury, so I'm just going to tape it thing. (laughs) If I tape it, it'll be better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think that's the first one. Like I see people, um, recommending taping for all sorts of things and, um, it's just not good practice. Okay. Like don't, don't friends, don't let friends buddy tape and climb. That's number one. (laughs) (laughs) So where, where is the line? I'm actually, I think this is really interesting and I'll draw on a couple personal anecdotes um, from my last like six months of climbing. So back in October, I was trying a boulder problem in Joe's Valley. It had a really weird open hand sloper on it where your wrist is kind of um, flexed at a pretty acute angle. And I felt like I hyperextended my wrist. Um, if, if that makes sense, like a little popping or something that, yeah, it was was, like, it almost distract, like it almost came apart a little bit. Yeah. It felt like it did. It felt like it did. And it, it hurt and was sore for months. And, um, for months after that on very specific movements, it was only on like very open hand sloper, moves where I was, where I had a lot of load on that hand. So like a big slap to a sloper with that right hand or hanging 
with a lot of weight from an open position hold on mm-hmm. that hand. Um, and I was trying to, I was in Leavenworth. This is like a month later. I'm trying to send a climb I want to do. And I found that just putting like an inch wide piece of tape around my wrist and compressing the wrist with the tape. I mean, it made like a, it's weird how much it helped. It made like an incredible difference and allowed me to climb without that feeling of instability and with way less pain. And I was able to climb pretty hard and it just slowly got better as I climbed through it. Um, Mm -hmm. More recently, like right now I have a, but you, but you, at some point in time, you stopped wearing the tape. True. Yes. So is that the key just to move away from yeah, you have relying to on the tape? Okay. The tape. Okay. So it can be a helpful tool to help you climb through an injury, but you just don't want to become totally reliant on it and think that it's, it's going to help you prevent the next one or, or things like that. Yeah. I think that if you are, if you're chronic, if you have an injury, that I call chronic taping, um, <laughs> then you're not actually, you're not actually fixing the problem. Okay. You're just sort of like, you know, it's a pacifier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I've seen that with, um, I've seen that with people's fingers a lot, like where someone will have like a minor pulley sprain. It's just, or it's chronic. It's just been chronic pain for years and they just always tape yeah. that finger. Yeah. So they're weakening the whole system. Um, let's go back for just a second to, um, movement reeducation okay. because something that I do with finger injuries is actually to retrain the movement of the hand, because when you have a finger injury, that fi- the body is a drama queen. And <laughs> if you get an insult to the body, it will just suddenly turn off everything surrounding it so that you don't use the thing, which is fine. If you break your femur and you shouldn't walk on it. Not as fine if you've injured your finger slightly, but you're still using all five digits. So when somebody has a finger injury, one of the first things that I do when they can do it, um, meaning that, you know, we are able to load it a little bit because even like a small range of motion when it's active is load to the finger. Um, And so we have to be cognizant of where they're at as far as their rehab goes. Um, The first thing that I do is train that finger to act on its own. So I have an exercise that I call tracking that everybody should do because it's really fun. And you just put your hand flat on a table, unloaded in front of your, not in front of your body, but like in line with your wrist, elbow, shoulder. So it's kind of off to the side a little bit, but your hand is flat. And so you take your fingers and you bend the tips of your fingers and you try to keep your palm down. And you watch what your PIP joints are those joints that are the like knuckles that lift up as you bend your fingers while you keep your palm flat. Um, You watch what your fingers do and just see like if one of your fingers gravitates towards the other finger, if your like pinky is way off over in Yonkers somewhere or like what is the movement pattern of your fingers? And oftentimes what you'll see is that, oh my gosh, look at that. That was my injured finger. So basically your finger still remembers that you had a finger injury. And until you change your mechanics, sometimes that finger injury just comes back. Like Mm -hmm. you'll be fine for a while, but then it's like, oh, 
gosh, it came back. But if you're cognizant of your mechanics and how often you're allowing your faulty mechanics or you're allowing them under load, um, you can change the chronology of that injury. Mm. Okay. So for people listening, Carrie just had her arm out flat. Like I'm, I'm kind of imagining if you were like at a standing video of this, maybe can I just give it to you to. Yes. Let's just, let's do that. People go watch the video. I'll put it in the show notes. That'll be a lot easier than me trying to describe it. Um, So you're looking just for inconsistencies when you do that movement, like fingers that just aren't tracking linearly. So I call it tracking because when there's faulty movement, one finger will not stay on its own track. It couples over to another track, for example. So usually you'll see it between the middle finger and the ring finger. One or the other, those two are the, um, are the most injured fingers in climbers. So usually it's more, sometimes it's their pointer finger and sometimes it's the pinky. It's crazy. Hands I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here. Are you doing it right doing now? Doing it right now. Yeah. It's staring <laughs> at my fingers like, whoa, my middle and ring are slightly moving towards see. you. I love watching this. This is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> my, because it's brain Olympics. Like if you notice that your hand has faulty mechanics and you try to fix that, it's not muscular, it's neuromuscular. So your brain is working really hard to consciously change your movement. And people's brains, they get really tired. And they'll be like, "I, just, oh my gosh, why is this so hard? <laughs> it's really fun. And I think everybody should do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'm excited to watch this. Own mechanics. I'm excited to watch this video. So if you... If you're doing this exercise, this finger tracking, and you're able to improve your mechanics while doing that movement, does that yeah. automatically transfer to your your finger okay. positions climbing? And I'm sorry, I Go get ahead. too excited and I interrupt you. And I'm really <laughs> apologize. Um, but if you notice that your finger mechanics are wonky and you're able to fix it, look at what you're doing on the hangboard. Like, watch when you put your hand on the hangboard. Do you automatically like go into full crimp mode, which is where your hand starts to fold at your MCP joints, which is basically like the joints that attach to your hand. Like once those, once those joints start to fold, we get a lot more force through the connective tissue of the hand. So we get more force through the A2, the A4, uh, the collateral ligaments and the volar plates. And once you start folding you're going to maybe alter where your fingers are, but do they automatically couple? And can you change that? Like, can you alter how your hand is being placed on the hangboard, given now that you have this information about yourself? Because I think in truth, like the term injury prevention, ugh, it is so nebulous. Mm. I think that injury prevention is the ability to self-assess by understanding your body's norms. And there's a lot in that sentence to unpack because you have to have time where you have self-assessed, where you've gone through and done your mobility, you've experienced uh, volume and load intensity, um, you have gathered this information about yourself and then you can assess your body's resiliency to change 
and know that if you add something to your training week or your climbing time and you're not paying attention to your body's norms and you're not doing a self-assessment, then I think that we become less resilient. So knowing how to modify the intensity and volume based on your self-assessment, I think that's prevention. Okay. Okay. I like that. I, I want to ask you, I want to get into some of these listener questions because I think there's, I, I always like to try to share stuff that's actionable that people can take away. And um, we've done some of that in this conversation, but I think some of these questions will get to more of that. But before that, I do have one question I've been kind of burning to ask you. You mentioned, you know, working with these high-level teams. You've worked with USA Climbing and followed the World Cup circuit and things like that and supported these athletes. You were talking about how these Olympians and these top athletes have a whole team around them, supporting them in all these different ways. And I wanted to ask you, what are most normal climbers who are actually athletes, you know, really devoting a lot of time to this sport and obsessing over it, what are the things that most normal climbers are missing in their routines? I know that's really general, but I want to leave it really open. Like, are there any things that, um, and this can be anything. This can be like where, like resources that people aren't aware of that they can go to, or this can be parts of their training, parts of their um, self-assessment that they're not doing or diet, sleep, like lifestyle, like anything. Um, but what are the things that are at the top of your list for you that come to mind, if anything? Mobility and a proper warm up. Okay. Yeah. Um, my favorite part of working, uh, in the world cup world is being in ISO and watching how all of the athletes warm up. And because usually in ISO, there's maybe like, there's some walls, but every single one of those people starts with mobility. And maybe they've already been doing mobility at the hotel room before they even got there. Um, and then they're just doing movements that are going to support their climbing. And then they start climbing or, and then they start hanging. Or if they're speed climbers, the speed climbing warm-up is absolutely insane like we'll do um what are those like muscle ups where you like hang from the bar and you pull yourself up really fast so that you um have the bar like at your waist they'll do like six of those wow. and they're just flying you know <laughs> but they've already done a massive mobility warm-up that looks really cool to watch actually hmm. mobility okay yeah. okay um, do you like to pair that? Like is if you were to coach an athlete and try to just improve their general athleticism, their robustness, would you just implement more mobility into their warm-up or do they do separate mobility in addition to that? How do you think about that? Um, it depends on the climber and what their schedule looks like and just how much mobility they need. Um, some climbers need a ton of mobility and they spend like an hour stretching before they climb, um, because they're really hypomobile. Um, hypo mobile hypo. Yeah. Instead of like hyper. Being, Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so for some people, all they need to do is just do a cardio warm up 
and just some light stretching and they are good to go. Some people need like an hour. They get up in the morning, they do, you know, a half an hour of like light positional stretching, and then maybe they have breakfast and then they go to the gym and they do like a little bit more of an active stretching warm up. So they're like taking those static stretches and they're just moving through them. And sometimes it's a flowy motion. And sometimes it's like a, like, I've got to try to get into this position and really push it a little bit, but it's, you know, some people really need to be already systemically warm before they push themselves in. Um, yeah. And for most people, I would say everyone needs a little bit of cardio before you start stretching. Mm. Like, especially if it's at the end range. Or if you are doing an active, like a really active stretching, you should already be slightly warm. And that can be five minutes on the bike, you know, Okay. to be anything crazy. Do you have it a, could be jumping rope. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, do you have a, do you have favorites rower versus running versus biking versus jump it rope? So depends on the person and where you are. Like if you're in St. George trying to climb, um, at the crag, it, you can probably use your hike in as okay. a warm up and then stretch at the crag, or you can bring a jump rope with you. Um, or some people like to go on a light trail run. You know, it, it really is just, you're just getting your body warm somehow. Okay. Sometimes I just peruse the internet and get really frustrated and my heart rate goes up and then I can go send my project. <laughs> <laughs> just check Twitter. Just read yeah. Twitter for five minutes. <laughs> ready to go <laughs> let that let that fury heat you up and prepare you for stretching uh, what are some other key elements of the warm-up that most climbers should hit on is it super individual or are there like key... I think that yeah I, I think a lot of climbers i'm sorry i keep interrupting you i just get so excited. i just keep asking really long questions that <laughs> no, I'm like a bunny rabbit i'm so i'm like let's go yeah <laughs> Sorry. I'm kind of a firecracker. I can't help it. Um, so the <laughs> dynamite comes in small packages, right? So um, <laughs> I can't wait to hear where this is going. Yeah, please continue. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, I think that we, as clients, we think a lot about our hands and our shoulders, but we don't think about our thoracic spine and our hips. Okay. And like, Climbing, you're usually, unless it's like super overhanging. I mean, when it's super overhanging, you're doing heel hooks. So you need that external rotation in your hip joints, but, um, we're like up against the wall, right? So you're, you're not usually like lifting your knee directly in front of you. You're like lifting your knee to the side, which is hip mobility. And like, you look at really strong sport climbers and they rest in the most ridiculous positions because they can get their bodies there. So like a lot of times you'll see people frogged, like sitting on their heels, essentially, that is hip mobility. And, um, you know, combining hip mobility with thoracic mobility, which is the part of your spine that's essentially your rib cage. So it's between your neck and your low back. And a lot of that, it's really hard when we get stiff in our uh, back muscles to get the rotation necessary to like lift your arm above your head. So like if your back and your thoracic spine are stiff, reaching overhead becomes a struggle. 
Okay. And then as far as the actual, um, man, I'm struggling this morning to string sentences together. As far as like what someone should actually do to accomplish opening up their hips and opening up their thoracic spine or loosening that up. Is, is this static stretching? Is this active movement stretching or, or mobility? Um, how long should someone do it? What, what are some of the parameters that you would, you would use to coach someone through that? So I think when we're, when we're talking about joints, because the thoracic spine, they're joints, it's bones. So um, if you do like a quick warm up so that you've got some body, uh, some systemic warming, um, that's already kind of given your muscles like a base for being warm, but it hasn't necessarily um, given your joints the opportunity to get warm. And so joints really like subtle, gentle movement. And that means like active, full range of motion, which is not contingent on a stretch. That's like, um, you know, cat-cow. Cat-cow as a thoracic mobilization is really good Mm. because it's gentle. You're not looking for a stretch. You're just looking like, what's my mobility here? Like, what are my joints doing right now? Can I get them to you know, motion is lotion kind of situation. Um, can I get them to move a little bit more free? Can they, you know, can I then throw in a little bit of rotation? So you could be in cat cow and you take your hand to the small of your back and you do a little rotation where you pull your shoulder back along your back and you take your gaze and you look to the side. And that is a little bit of thoracic rotation. So now we've gotten like a little bit more of an integrated movement um, rather just than a straight plane motion. And the same thing can happen in the hips where you, you know, you start with something that's more like a warrior where your where your foot is in front of you, or you're doing like a runner stretch where you lean into it with one into a lunge, and then you kind of pull back from it and you lean to it. And you're kind of like encouraging movement in your joints before throwing them into something rotational. Hmm. So that would be something more to the side like that kind of froggy kind of situation um, where, where they start to get rotatory movement and having your joints unloaded when you start to move them can be really nice. So like, say for your hips, you lay on your back and you don't load the leg. You just kind of move it around with your hand so that, or with your hands. So that you are guiding that range of motion and it's more passive Um, So you can just get a little bit of fluidity in the joint before you start putting it into um, greater positions under load. Okay. Cool. Okay. Thanks. That's helpful. Let's dive into some listener questions. Some of these we've talked about, but I'll ask them anyway. And if you have additional thoughts, that'll be great. Um, I think this one's interesting. I'm curious to see what you have to say about this. This is from Alistair. What are common prescriptions Carrie has given national level athletes? Is there an end to that question? That's it. That's the question. Yeah. Are there, (laughs) and I'm curious, like, would any of that be relevant for normal people anyway? Is that a good question to ask for? Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Um, (laughs) Okay. First off, Alistair. Woo. Um, climbers are climbers and we all, to a certain extent, 
kind of like I I talked to a, a person who's on our USA national team yesterday or the day before about her wrist injury. That's a actually pretty similar to yours. Mm. And so, um, we talked about wrist stability. We didn't actually talk about taping. Um, because when you are going to perform, I really think that anything that's on your body, um, alerts your mind to the fact that you have an injury. And if you're in performance mode, you shouldn't have to think about it. It should just be intuitive movement and you are crushing. And that is the goal. Don't think about the thing. Just go if possible. Um, when we're working with, uh, competitive athletes, sometimes they have to compete with an injury. And so that's where the protocols change a little bit. And we get a little bit more, um, supportive with within our treatments. So yeah, we're taping, we're needling, we're doing everything in our power to fix the thing so that they can compete. And always in that situation, time is our greatest barrier to success. And that is not the case for recreational athletes. We have time. It's okay. We don't have to do it this week, this moment, this hour. You can maybe take three days off, but for some people, they don't have that time. And you have to have all of the resources available to you for performance. And so, yes, the protocols do change. Okay. That's interesting. That's another thing that separates recreational, you know, recreationals and air quotes, rock climbers from soccer or players, active. from adult soccer players or adult softball players right. or things, you know, like we're like, no, I have to do it tomorrow. Conditions are going to be good and it's the weekend and I have to send now. So I'm going to make it. Okay. Well, if that's the case, <laughs> then yes. Well, I mean, this is <laughs> well, like the end of your trip. Okay. Here's the caveat to this is that, okay, you're at the end of your trip. You're in Seyus. It's your last <laughs> attempt of the day. You just injured yourself, but you're like, oh, I have one more try. I got to get on an airplane. I got to drive to Geneva, whatever. Just know that maybe you might have to take the next three months off. And if it's worth it, <laughs> Wow. Like, I mean, I say that, I say that as like a really big, like, it's very rare that you have to take that amount of time off, but like, think about it like that. Is it worth it? And if the answer is yes, absolutely. Go do that thing. Cool. Okay. That's helpful. I like that. <laughs> uh, let's see here. This is a question from Sean. I hear and read a lot about the role of antagonist work and mobility training, both as prehab and rehab. When looking at one's overall training plan, how does Carrie decide when and how much to incorporate antagonistic and mobility work? So I think that an antagonistic work doesn't have to be necessarily um, a constant thing unless you know that you have a specific weakness that is one-sided. So like if you have a propensity for anterior or the front of your shoulder or bicep issues, you need to be training your posterior side. And it should probably be something that you are thinking about even while you're climbing um, is engaging the posterior side or the backside of the shoulder. Um, and it is extremely important. Um, but there's a point where that stuff 
you stop feeling it, you stop seeing gains. And so you should not have to do it all the time. Um, I have this saying where like stretches or exercises are only necessary when they're necessary. Mm. Um, and that goes for anything like that goes for supporting it with tape. It goes with like almost anything. If it's necessary, you should keep it up. Um, there's a great book that Volker Schoffel and uh, some of the coaches over at Cafe Craft put out. It's called ACT or something, but it's um, it's a book of like antagonistic training and it's pretty cool and it's available online. Um, I think it's free as well. So that is a really cool resource if people are interested in um, what antagonists to do when. Um, I think they're more on the mentality of this should be like in your routine all the time. And I do think that that's a great way to start to be able to self-assess when you need it and when you don't, is if you have a practice that you're doing consistently and you feel those those changes happen and then you feel when they stop happening. Um, and that adds to your ability to self-assess. So yeah, it's important. I like that. I like that saying and that way of framing it. Um, I do want to ask this though. So climbing, it, it's very often that we have like hard charging climbers who only climb and they only do climbing specific training. Are there any things that you like to have most of your clients do most of the time to balance out all of the polling and the the climbing specific stuff, or is it just incredibly individual? Um, I I think that if people are in the season and they are pulling hard often, and that is what they're doing, they need to have practices that undo the doing. So. That means if you are doing climbs that are really difficult on your fingers, you need to have a minimums style protocol where you are loading your fingers at a really, I'm talking like 10 to 30% of your total body weight. That's a connective tissue health session. And you need to have those during your season to undo the doing and kind of like give your, give your joints and your tendons and your pulleys and your muscles, um, just give them something good. And also people need to be stretching after they're climbing or they need to be recovering after they're climbing. And that is, that comes with, that's the mobility side of it. So like, if you have been, you, if you've been doing a right heel hook for you know, on a climb for the last hour and a half, you absolutely need to stretch your hamstring back out and you need to be doing lower extremity mobility following and maybe even before on the next day. So did that answer the question? Yeah, it did. But I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned the minimums because that was actually something I wanted to ask you about you, something I wanted to ask you about as well. I actually just saw that on your Instagram this morning and I hadn't heard you talk about that before. Um, but it's interesting because there's been this no hangs protocol that has, you know, Emil Abrahamson has, has kind of made it viral with a YouTube video and I've talked about it and I've tried it and yeah, it, it's kind of this hot thing. Um, the interesting thing about it is that some people, many people have gotten incredible strength gains from doing it, which is counterintuitive, but yeah, what you describe with your minimums is 
almost exactly the same protocol as what he's been doing. Can you elaborate on the, the minimums a little bit? Like what does a session look like and how often would you have someone do that? And in your from your perspective, what is that accomplishing for the athlete? Minimums are a connective tissue health session based on the work by Keith Barr. And this is not a strengthening protocol. It is a recovery protocol. Um, which is loading the tissue or loading your tendons in a low load, low intensity, low volume way, much like you would, I think of it like the rotator cuff exercises for the hand. Like it is super low weight. In order to get rotator cuff um, actual rotator cuff engagement, you need nothing over four pounds before you start to use your big muscles. So the same thing goes with the hands. The protocol is a twice a day protocol with at least a six hour break in between. And it has collagen as part of it because collagen is like voodoo. Um, your, your tendons and your ligaments and your connective tissue they lack an intracellular matrix, meaning that they have to pull nutrients from the system. So they're pulling it from the available resources that are in your bloodstream at that time. And if there's nothing there, then they don't have anything to pull from. And that's why our connective tissue is the first thing to get dehydrated is because if you are dehydrated and it doesn't have those water molecules to pull from, it, there's nothing. They have no... There's, there's nothing that has been stored there really. I mean, there's like a little bit, if you look at the histology, um, but in truth, like it needs to be systemic. So you take the collagen 30 to 60 minutes prior to whatever it is that you're doing. And so it's systemic. And then you just barely load it. And the loading is a maximum of 10 minutes. Anything after that, they saw zero effects more. Like it just kind of stops. Um, and so when we're talking about recovery and rebuilding and undoing the doing, this is essentially like, oh, okay, I am giving my tendons and ligaments like a shot of nutrients. And so you don't need to load it. I think that it's interesting that people are getting strength gains from this. And I wonder if, like, I wonder if are they... Have they had hangboard training prior? Like, ha are they already hangboarding and they're just adding this in? Um, the caveat to this is I've actually seen a lot of people get injured when they overdo this. Mm. So um, when they treat it as a strength protocol, which it is absolutely not, I'm not even going to, I I can't, I can't go down that road um, because I have no evidence for it and I have nothing to base that on. And so the people that are getting straight, I think that they're just doing something. I think they weren't doing something and now they're doing something. And maybe that's the difference. But over time, I think it's more detrimental because if you're doing this twice a day for however long and you're hanging 10 seconds or however long you're doing it for, and you're loading your tissues at some point in time, that is going to, that's going to be injurious. Okay. So people that are treating it like strength training and, and the intensity is too high, it becomes injurious over time. Um, so to paint a picture for people, this is like the loading that you're 
with these minimums that you're suggesting is like feet feet on the floor, like pulling very gently on a hangboard in a variety of grip positions, um, which is which is similar to Emil. His it was mm-hmm. interesting to talk to him about it because he's a very high level climber and has done fingerboarding. Yeah. He's done campusing. He's his theory was that he just felt like it helped his fingers stay really really healthy, and he was yeah. able to pull harder more often in his climbing sessions. And he thinks that that's where he was getting the strength gains from, which seems mm. totally reasonable. Like if you're flooding your your connective tissue with nutrients twice a day um, with a lot of intention and you do that over, you know, a month or two months or however long versus not doing anything, like it makes sense that you're going to be able to get more out of your training. Yeah, go ahead. Here is where it's important to know all the little details. So this is important to know, the, this is the method section. So Emil is, he's Norwegian or is he Swedish? He's Swedish, Swedish right? Mm-hmm. Okay, the weather in Sweden is terrible. <laughs> so he's probably not climbing. Like how much, how much is he climbing first off? Okay, so how much, how many hours a week is he spending climbing versus how many hours a week is he spending loading his fingers? When is he loading his fingers depending on when he's climbing? Like, is he doing like a mat? Like for him, this is like a max hang session. Um, is he doing a max hang session twice a day and climbing outside at the same time? We don't know. This is what we don't know. Um, and so those results become difficult to replicate, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's doing a, like his no hangs protocol is almost exactly what you suggest with your minimums. It's like feet on the floor, 30 to 50% of kind of your max, very light loading, um, twice a day, six hours apart for 30 days. That's what he did in this experiment. Yeah. And I believe he was doing that on top of his normal training, which was mostly indoor bouldering at the climbing mm-hmm. gym. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that level, if it's if it truly is 30 to 60% of his total body weight, awesome. It's probably very, very supportive because you're getting recovery. But a lot of people are listening. So I just want to clear up our... Yeah. I always thought that no hangs were with like a block hanging. Oh, okay. Your... Yeah. Okay. Like, Got it. Because you're not hanging. Um, so a minimum is like applying the minimal amount of pressure to something to engage it. I like the term or I like the the word minimums for these a lot better than no hangs, because you're absolutely right. Like we call he was calling this workout no hangs because he's pulling on a hangboard with hanging. his feet on the ground and he's not hanging. But you're right. Mm-hmm. We we call like a tension block or things like that no hang implements. And some people train very, very heavy with those things. Um, yes. So that is a little bit vague. So I'm glad you clarified that. Um, I think that like at a 30 to 60% of total body weight twice a day. Awesome. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Every single day? Somebody. Yeah. Twice okay. a day, if you're not injured, that okay. there, there are always kind of little bits that go with this, right? Because because I'm a physical therapist, so I do no harm. Yeah. <laughs> um. So if you're injured, you can try this at like a 10% of your total body weight, which is essentially like you are just bending at your fingers, and you can look at where your fingers 
how your fingers are pulling and moving. And it's such little load that you could probably have a conversation and like move your head around and whatever. Um, 30 to 60% is more of a healthy tissue recovery session. Um, and then like you get to that 80% and you're almost in like, that's warm up zone. I'm warming up to go mm. pull. Or I am warming up. I'm going to start hangboarding to warm up to go climb. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these minimums are in the 30 to 60 range for healthy tissue. Correct. Can you take us through a session? So it's 10 minutes max. Um, mm-hmm. Is it 10 seconds on 50 off for that duration of the 10 minutes? That's what I use. Um, I spoke to Keith Barr and I presented the my minimums protocol to him and he said it it looked really good and he was like, you need to be doing research with this. Cool. <laughs> I want to have so him on the great. podcast, man. We should, yeah, we should. He's so great. He would totally come on. He's amped. That'd be awesome. Um, okay. You know, he's got his, he has a lot going on from a research standpoint. He has a lot of minions. He's got a lot of, <laughs> a lot of really cool stuff going on, but he's a really good guy. And I think he would love to talk to me. Just, I think it's cool. You should reach out. Him. Cool. I'll I will. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Let's do it. Yeah, that'd be great. Because yeah, we've we've um, we've speculated a lot on. I've speculated a lot on this podcast with multiple people about his work and how to apply it to what we do as climbers. And it's just speculation at best. So it'd be fun to so hear awesome. his thoughts. He would yeah. love. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but I presented it to him, and you know, I presented it. I was like, "What do you think of this? As like, can we make this a strength protocol? Like, what you know." He has a different, it would be a really cool podcast. Have him on. Um, but the 1050, I just kind of landed on that and he said it looked good. So I kept it, <laughs> um, but that's it. So I just do 10 seconds on 50 seconds off and it depends. I like to have a grip repertoire in this and sometimes I'll throw shoulders into it. So depending on, on the goal, um, a, half crimp, like a true half crimp where your MCP joints are in relative neutral. Um, look at your hand, make sure you're not cheating. So she means oh, the back of your hand is flat up to your second knuckle. Yep. Okay. Um, a three finger drag is really good. Um, especially if you're a full crimper, <laughs> uh, it really stretches things out and people feel it. And a lot mm. of times, like if you find that you have a higher propensity towards full crimping, when you go into a three finger drag, you might actually need to put less pressure on because you might be a little neurologically weaker, muscularly weaker, and maybe even tighter in your hand. So the, the pressure is really, dip- it should just feel minimal and good. It should not hurt at all. That is the, that's like the biggest caveat to this. Um, and then for some people doing like uh, one finger, like if you, if like you never put your pinky on or something, you might have to do a one finger just to have it on its own. Um, I also, I like to do a full crimp just to kind of like, like get a little bit of that squeegee effect in the joints. Um, and sometimes I just do two of those. So typically like right now, my minimums look like four sets of half crimp, four sets of three finger drags, two sets of full crimp. But at this point, like if I start doing more with my shoulders, 
I'm going to throw in that middle rung on the beast maker board. And I'm going to do like a slight engagement in my shoulder. And if you could see me right now, I've got like, I'm grabbing, like almost like I was going to do a one arm hang, but my arm is bent and my shoulder is really super engaged. And Peter is still on the floor. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Like this is really easy. Okay. Yeah. That's like 50% of my body weight. Okay. Just a, just a light active engagement because your shoulders also have connective tissue. Cool. Okay. Thank you for that. I wanted to ask this too. So if someone were to use a tension block, I actually do this in my van. I have a tension block and some kettlebells. Um, is it a, does it seem like a good idea to, if you know what your one rep max is on a specific edge and grip type, just load to 50% of that and pick it up for 10 seconds? Like, does that work as well? You're shaking your head. No. So what I do in that case is I think it's good to mentally separate this out, like really separate it from your max hangs because as climbers, it is our, uh, we just want to grab as hard as we can. (laughs) Even when we think we're not grabbing as hard as we can, we're still probably grabbing as hard as we can. And, um, if you measure it out a little bit differently, you might actually switch your brain a little bit. So what I do is if you have two arms, then you're going to take your body weight and, uh, divide it in half. And then, or what you're going to do is take your body weight and take, you know, 30 to 60% of that total and then divide it in half. And then you've got one arm on each side and that's the amount that you would put. And it's actually, I I actually really like to do this with a, with a block, like a proper no hang because it is very measured and you, I, I, I like having numbers um, because you can tell, like, if you've climbed really hard, sometimes that feels a little on the heavy side and you have to drop it down or you feel really good and you can maybe handle like the upper end of that scale. Um, And it can be a good measurement for recovery. Can you talk me through that again? I, I lost some of that. So how do you find those numbers to use for if you were using a tension block? So if it's a no hang like a, like hanging it by your side with a tension block, you take your total body weight. So say I weigh a hundred pounds. I have two arms, so I'm going to divide that in half. So that's 50. And then I take 30% of that, which is what? 15 pounds. Okay. Got it. But if that feels too heavy because it's by your side and it is more finger related, like usually, at that situation, people are more at like 10 to 30% of your total body weight. Okay. When you're using a block. Okay. Because you don't have your big muscles from your shoulders kind of, you know, mucking things up. I mean, it's got to depend on how strong the climber is and what size yeah. holds they're using and what grip and mm-hmm. things like that as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It does depend a little bit. I think, you know, drawing back on that, it needs to feel really good. And it needs to feel really easy and not getting bogged down with how much you're mm, pulling. Yeah. 
Like it just needs, uh, you need the minimal amount of force and it doesn't matter the type of contraction. Like it can be any contraction. You could, you could grab onto a ball and squeeze it for 10 seconds. And if it's, that's probably enough to be honest, but we, I just love throwing hangs and stuff into things. It feels good to me, but maybe other people have other ideas for how to minimally load the tissue in order to, like I said, I haven't done research with this. So Mm -hmm. this is not set in stone. This is just what I do. Okay. How should someone feel after they're done? Great. (laughs) Oh, you should actually, it's funny. People start to just feel good. It's bizarre. Like, like it's an exercise that you're doing that feels good. Like climbing, we're so used to having pain when we're climbing. Like mm. climbing is painful. And um, to do something that is associated with climbing that just feels good, it's kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> and what you'll find is like, if you are a chronic taper, suddenly you'll find that you just stop using your tape. Hmm. It's funny. So. Okay. Awesome. If you are a chronic taper, do your minimums. Report back. Tell me how it goes. And as far <laughs> as like me a message on Instagram. <laughs> awesome. And as far as like how the sensation feels, like how how easy this is, I'm imagining that this feels even easier than the start of a typical climbing session warm-up. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. This is like bending your hand just to a position and applying just enough pressure that you slightly engage to resist it. That's it. Okay. All right. So this is twice a day, six hours apart to undo the doing when we're in performance mode and pulling really hard on our fingers. Does that go on all the time or is that just when we're in performance mode? How do you think about that over like the long term for an athlete? Um, I think especially when you're in, in your season for the in-season athlete, it is definitely necessary, but again, it's only necessary when it's necessary. So if you if you end your season and you're like, you feel really good and you feel recovered and you've been doing these the whole time and you're not really feeling that they're helping you anymore. Again, this is like this is where it gets a little bit um, gray, where I don't have a concrete answer for you. Um, I think that if you're still feeling gains from something, or if you're still feeling like you're getting better through it, keep doing it. Like it's serving you. Um, but if you are not, and you're just like doing it because it's a part of a habit, and you're not seeing how it's um, affecting you, then I would say stop. Okay. Do something else. You might you might need something for your um, for for your wrists or something. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. You know, I'm just giving examples. Yeah, that's helpful because I think as climbers, you know, a lot of us are so obsessive. We tend to collect all these little things that we feel like we have to stay on top of all the time, and eventually, it just gets really overwhelming, or it can. So I like that. I like what you shared. Okay. Um, I have one more kind of like training, prehab, prevention question for you. And then a couple of questions about you. And then I think we can wrap this up. Um, I've been very greedy with you this morning. 
I want to respect your time. Uh, this is from Chris. For injury prevention, what is Carrie's opinion on strength training with compound movements? For example, squat, deadlift, and bench versus more specific antagonist type exercises. For example, external rotation. Do you think that both or neither or one is much better than the other? How do you think about compound movements versus more targeted specific movements? It's funny because in my opinion, those two terms are uh, opposites. Like I actually think that a compound movement is integrating smaller movements. So in my mind, working the big muscle groups, like in a deadlift or in a bench press, um, you're working your big muscles. So if you are someone who has not typically um, built your other muscles of your shoulders or your quads or your glutes or something like that. If that is new to you, you might want to throw that in. That is very helpful, but climbing as a sport is really integrated. And so we need those teeny tiny muscles along with the big global movers. Um, and I think that if, if you sense that you have a problem area, especially in the shoulders or in the hips, you probably need both big muscles and the integrated smaller muscle groups because that's how the mechanics of the shoulder specifically work less or so in the hip, but very much so in the hip. Cool. Okay. This is a question from Katya. My friend Katya finally submitted some questions, which is awesome. My friend Katya too. Yeah. Yeah. I know our friend Katya, I should have said, <laughs> um, she writes, I would love to hear about how Carrie has kept her psych and strength up over two decades of climbing at such a high level. Stubbornness. <laughs> Perfect. Anything, <laughs> anything to add or do you want to just leave it at that? Um, it's funny. You know, I was telling somebody erroneously the other day that I don't train. And then I realized that I train all the time. And I also... I'm constantly doing mobility. Like I cannot sit still. And like right now I'm, I'm, this is air quotes right now. I'm sitting, but I'm fully sitting in like a, like a piriformis stretch. So I'm, I'm like, I have been, I've been stretching my hamstrings and my glutes and everything the entire time that we've been talking. <laughs> so um, that's a lie that I don't train. I do train and I constantly have like, I know that I have weaknesses and I'm always looking to get better in those weak categories. It might be a type of movement um, or, or like grip position. Um, and so that, that has freed me up from keeping to like one approach all the time because I'm looking at weaknesses as my body is changing and as my goals change and as the seasons change. So um, I'm constantly trying to like add little things into my training or into my approach that help me continue to have success. Do you think that's a better way to go for most people versus finding something that they like and just training that thing? Is it is it important to be kind of reassessing and moving through different seasons and having that variety for most people? Oof. Um, 
I think that people have different lives Mm. and that dictates a lot about the time that they have um, to, to be thoughtful and to um, change their training for themselves. So I think that getting a prescribed training plan from someone really takes that time aspect and it just frees people up quite a bit. So while I would say, yes, I think it's really good for people to be able to self-assess and adjust things for themselves. I also think that just doing something is better than not doing something. Mm. And like for my climbing partner, who's an incredibly busy pulmonologist who has three kids and only wants to super crush all the time. Like it is way better for her to have a training plan that somebody else wrote that she can just follow it and do whatever they tell her to do. And she doesn't have to think about it. Um, and she's still crushing and she still loves rock climbing. Mm. That does not work for me. I tend to get one of those programs and go, oh, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, like, you know, take that off the list. That's going to injure me or no, I already do that like a ton or, Oh, Oh yeah, let's do that. And then I'd like pick one thing out of it and do it. <laughs> so, um, I'm a, I'm a cherry picker. I'm a really terrible person to coach. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that's a good lead into this question. This is another one from Casca. Um, Casca writes, how does Carrie still manage to boulder hard as a mom of two? One child seems manageable, but you don't see that many families with two plus kids at the crack. Ooh. Well, my kids are older now, but I mean, I was bouldering when they were little. Um, and I felt that bouldering was much easier to do as an activity with children than rope climbing. And I think that also kept me in the bouldering world a little bit more because it is more accessible with kids. Um, you know, you're not tethered to a rope like 30 feet plus off the deck and your child's like, mom, um, Bouldering is way easier, but it does get a little uh, hairy when you're like topping out junior big achievement in Bishop and your child is like, hey, mom, when are we leaving? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, in a minute, honey, I'm just topping this out. Don't mind me. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to answer it the same way. Stubbornness. I like I need to be outside. I love climbing. Climbing feeds my soul. And I just keep doing it. And like, I've had a lot of really serious injuries. Like I've had a lot of surgery in the last few years and um, I've had to come back several times. And there have been moments when I'm like, is this it? Like, mm. am I done? Is this, is this the end of my career? Am I ever going to get back there? And somehow I always get inspired again. And, you know, I worry that the day will come when that inspiration pool dries up but it hasn't happened yet. And I'm really thankful for it. And I think that's why I'm still, I'm still in this game. No, oh, that's awesome, man. You keep answering these uh, questions as if you know, my next question, like you're, you're like doing the transitions for me. So this is from Casca as well. Who are Carrie's inspirations in climbing now? And how has that changed over the years since she started climbing? Oh, my, my greatest inspiration right now is my climbing partner, Cheryl Perosi. She is like, it's great because she's a lot taller than me. And, but we are, 
we are strong. Like both of us are very strong. And so sometimes it's pretty fun. Um, we'll pick something and she'll look at me and be like, this is reachy. And I'm like, okay, well, let's try to figure out, like, can you help me find different holds? And so like, we have this joke, there's this climb in little cottonwood called, um, uh, breaking dawn. That is one that doesn't get done very often. And it like is trying to rip my left shoulder out of my torso <laughs> because it's so long, but she was like, no, 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 no. We can figure this out. And that was really inspiring to me for her to like acknowledge Carrie, you are really short, but you're really strong. So for me, it's like, let's find beta that makes me feel strong, not short. And so mm. I ended up finding different holds. They're like completely different holds. <laughs> and so I don't call it breaking dawn anymore. I call it raking lawns. <laughs> and I call her up and I'm like, you want to go on project raking lawns with me? She's like, yeah, let's go. You know? <laughs> um, so that is really, she is really inspiring to me right now. And I love seeing her have success. I love seeing her complete problems and send. And I feel like I'm sending with her, mm. even though she's the only one that's sending. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's great that's great there's nothing i mean when you when you're having trouble sending there's nothing better than sending vicariously through your climbing port partner who you're rooting for so yes that's awesome man that sounds great that sounds like such a special partnership it is that's cool <laughs> okay um final listener question this is another one from katya our our friend katya uh, she writes, what are some of Carrie's big dreams for the future, climbing and or non-climbing? Just to keep climbing. Um, I think that's number one. Like when I'm consistently climbing, I get really strong. But when I have things that that get in the way, like sometimes life gets in the way or work gets in the way or something gets in the way. And I have this saying I really liked, okay. So I really, um, it's a problem that I have where I like to overschedule myself. And so lately when I go to overschedule myself, I say, don't punish future you. And I say no to that thing. And what that does is it allows me, I don't like the word balance, but it, um, it allows me to have consistency to climb and be happy and have work and have a family. Um, it's just managing my time well and knowing that even though that, that schedule that I have that looks like a bunch of different colored blocks, that, that on, on my screen, it looks like it's just a bunch of blocks, but really that's my life I'm looking at. And I have to block things out and say, like, I literally on my schedule, I have it blocked out and it has a big capital no. <laughs> it just says no. And so if somebody's like, oh, can you do this then? I'm like, nope, I got mm. no going on then. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What, what do you do with your no time? Is that just like you time, family time, climbing time? Yes, it's all of all those things. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And I have specific times in my week that are no time for climbing. <laughs> and I have no, this is when you're going to go play 
tennis with Sebastian mm. or, you know, you're going to cook dinner or whatever. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Um, that reminds me of a really great quote or saying that I, I think I got from Tim Ferriss. I at least got it from his podcast, maybe one of his guests, but I have a tendency to, I think we all have a tendency to overcommit to things in the future because we're really bad at imagining what that's actually going to feel like when it comes. You're like, sure, I'll do that thing in six months. And so the, uh, he asked himself, what what would my response be? Like, how excited would I be about this if it were next Tuesday? That's the question that he asked himself. And I love that, you know? I love that. It's like, oh yeah, I wouldn't be psyched. I, I'd be like bummed that it was conflicting with my climbing schedule or I, I just realized I wouldn't be that excited about this event or whatever it is. So yeah, that's another good one um, that, I, that I've carried with me from Tim. <clears throat> Fourth thought. Well, this has been awesome. I had a pretty long outline of stuff. We didn't get to a lot of it. I think you and I could talk for hours and hours, but I want to ask you, is there anything that we didn't get to that feels important to share that you want to share before we wrap this one up? Yes. Uh, I have a passion project that I've been working on for, well, it's been in the works for seven years now, but it's really taken on... um, a life of its own in the last eight months or so. And it's a website and it's just called carriecooperdpt.com. And what it is, is I've tried to create a resource for climbers. And some of it has like injury uh, treatment and protocols and stuff on it, but a lot of it is just information. And so I, would love for your listeners to head over there. We launch it April 27th. That's our date. And I'm a perfectionist and it is not done, but I want to start releasing it to you now um, and keep adding to it. So it is definitely a work in progress and I would love your feedback and anything that you're interested in, or you want me to share more of something Um, that is the entire goal of the website is it's a resource. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. And that was actually going to be my next question is which, what resources do you want to share or or point people to or make them aware of? So that's incredible. And you and I are talking, um, the first week of April, this is probably a month out. So this will come out in early May. So for people listening, you can go check that out right now. Can you say the website one more time? Carrie Cooper DPT. Okay. Awesome. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well for people who are listening. Dr. Carrie Cooper, thank you so much for spending the morning with me. This has been really fun um, and I've really enjoyed it. I've really gotten a lot out of this conversation and it's been really fun to get to know you a a little bit better and geek out about climbing training and all sorts of other things. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That was really fun. (laughs) Hey friends, just a quick reminder before you go, if you want to learn more about Carrie, you can check out her website at carriecooperdpt.com. That stands for Doctor of Physical Therapy carriecooperdpt.com. I'll link to it in the show notes. She's got tons of great resources 
for helping you guys find a physical therapist or a doctor near you. She's got self-treatment resources, educational resources, and a bunch of other good stuff at her website. So be sure to check that out if you want to see more from Carrie. And be sure to follow her on Instagram as well. I'll link to her Instagram in the show notes. You can find her at Carrie Cooper underscore DPT on the gram. Also, just a reminder to check out PhysiVantage. If you want to try their supercharged collagen or any of their other incredible nutritional products, head over to PhysiVantage.com and use promo code NUGGET15 at checkout for 15% off your next order and get ready to feel the PhysiVantage. I love this stuff. I actually take the supercharged collagen every single day. And be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store. It's available for iOS and Android. You can try it out for free. The free version gives you access to 75 different workouts created by professional coaches Tom Randall and Ollie Tour of Lattice Training. It's awesome. The flexibility workout I've been doing is called Hip and Leg Flexibility. So go check it out if you hate stretching and want to make it easy. And that is it, my friends. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the very end. Hope you guys have an amazing week. Thanks so much for listening. And we will see you next time. Like we do.